You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Cameron, Elias, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ace Tie Pilot, Chuck Wagon Gamer, and Samantha. As well as our newest Commodores, Elias and Cameron. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the early piratical history of New Providence Island, which was really most of the history of the island. It may have been founded by Puritan settlers, and there were the recent sugar plantations cropping up that were clearing the wooded inland of New Providence, but it was mostly the pirates. Or... More accurately, salvage wreckers and privateers. Privateers that did have letters of mark from Governor Robert Clark, but Robert Clark didn't actually have the authority to do that. When we left off, Robert Clark had just been removed from office by the Lord's Proprietor of the Bahamas and replaced, and a Spanish fleet was on their way to New Providence to revenge themselves against this burgeoning pirate haven. This is episode 235, Foundation Myths, Part 2. As governor of New Providence Island, Robert Clark built a privateer armada that included some pirates we already know, names like Thomas Paine, Jan Willems, and John Coxon. But there is another notable pirate in this fleet who we've only ever mentioned in passing. His name was Pierre Breha. Pierre Breha was one of the most prominent Bahamian pirates in those early days. He arrived from France to the West Indies in 1678 as a member of the fleet of the Comte d'Estrée. 
That fleet was intended to win the Franco-Dutch War for France, but famously it wrecked on the 11th of May, 1678. Their very first landfall in the Americas was to run aground on a coral reef, and it left the fleet hobbled. The flagship Terrible and the vice-admiral Bourbon had both run aground. They were totaled in the wreck, and the fleet was basically lost. Now, some of the sailors did stick around, and the fleet eventually reassembled, although with less strength than they had when they arrived, but Breha and his compatriots decided not to continue on with Comte d'Estray. Instead, they made for Petit Guave, where they joined up with Michel de Grammont's crew. Later, in 1678, Breha sailed with Grammont against the raid on Maracaibo. There, he captured a two-gun, 70-man frigate called the Saint-Francois. It wasn't a huge ship, but it was fast, and it made Pierre Breha a captain. But even though he had a ship of his own, he was unable to secure a commission at Saint-Domingue, so he decided to try his luck elsewhere in the West Indies. Breha succeeded at New Providence Island. There, Breha met a fellow French privateer named Pierre Blot, and they decided to join forces. Their first action of note was, well, their plan was to go out and salvage some Spanish plunder from a nearby wreck, but when they got there, two Spanish ships were already on the scene. There was a pink, which you should remember, very shallow-bottomed boats good for the shallow waters of the Bahamas, and a bark under Spanish Captain Martin de Milgar. They were overseeing the salvage operation, when the two French pirates attacked. But this was not a typical New Providence raid. Instead of killing all of the Spaniards and wrecking their ships on some faraway coast so they could cover up the evidence, these two did things in a much more traditional privateer fashion. They boarded the Spanish, took their treasure, and left them with enough food and water to get back home alive. Then, with the Spanish out of their hair, they went back to salvaging the wreck. In the end, they walked away with more than 200,000 pesos in Spanish silver, which is a good haul. But of course, the French pirates clearly weren't following the program here. They let Capitan Melgar go. He made it back to Havana and was able to give a full report to the governor there, José Fernández Cordoba, Ponce de León. This was the piece of evidence that for years now, the Spanish had been lacking in regard to piracy operations out of New Providence. It was the keystone for which Havana had been waiting, and it was just handed to them. Governor José Fernández Cordoba began planning his revenge. In the meanwhile, though, Breha was organizing another wrecking expedition in the Bahamas, this time with the English captains Conway Woolley, John Markham, and the Dutch captain Jan Cornelizoon. It was a large wrecking operation, but before they departed, Jan Willems and Thomas Paine arrived on the scene. Thomas Paine had a brand new commission he'd received from Governor Thomas Lynch of Jamaica. That commission was for pirate hunting, and it actually helped him get out of some legal troubles in Jamaica, but Thomas Paine wasn't going to do any pirate hunting. Instead, he convinced all of those assembled wreckers to give up their salvage operation 
and sail for St. Augustine, Florida. The raid itself was actually pretty lackluster, compared to other raids against the fortress. They captured some farmers out in the countryside, but when the pirates marched on St. Augustine proper, they found it to be a fully manned, well-armed, and vigilantly defended fortress city. The pirates never even reached the walls to storm them. They were chased off almost immediately. They did send a ransom demand back to St. Augustine for those captured farmers, but in response, instead of a few bags of coins, the Spanish sent out a cavalry division. A division that charged the pirate beachhead and forced the pirates to withdraw. This was not one of the great pirate raids, but it did have some consequences. This raid against St. Augustine proved to the Spanish that that the pirates out of New Providence were out for loot, plunder, and booty, specifically Spanish loot. In their eyes, any action now taken against the colony at New Providence was fully justified. And we should be honest here, it absolutely was justified. I mean, what would you do if a gang of homeless, drunken foreign anarchists showed up and kidnapped a bunch of people? Now, the governor of Cuba had ample resources at his disposal. He could probably deal with this pirate threat on his own, but if he wanted to be sure to really stick it to New Providence, he would need the assistance of his immediate superior, the Viceroy of New Spain, Tomás de la Cerda, the third Marquis de la Laguna. And he did, in fact, write to the Viceroy, but de la Cerda had his own troubles with pirates at just about that time. Just a couple of months before the attempted raid on St. Augustine, Florida, Lauro de Graff attacked and captured the Mexican city of Veracruz. The Viceroy raised a militia force, which would have been able to retake Veracruz with ease, but getting the militia there in time was a difficult proposition, so he tried another tactic. He enlisted a small force of private Spanish mercenary sailors, Corsarios, many of whom were the feared Biscayners. These were Spain's answer to the pirates. They sailed on Veracruz and took the city back without a fight. The pirates fled in terror. De Graff did go on to attack Campeche and some settlements on the Yucatan, but the Corsarios chased after them. But once they rounded the Yucatan, the Corsarios lost track of De Graff, and decided to put in at Havana. And wouldn't you know it, the governor of Cuba, José Fernández de Cordoba, had just received news of the raid on St. Augustine. All of a sudden, he found himself in need of a force of private mercenary sailors with experience in dealing with pirates. And here they were, but he had a new commander for them. See, this operation was going to be different, because the Bahamas were different. We're not talking about frigates on the relatively deep water of the rest of the West Indies, firing volleys at each other from afar, no. This was a shallow water region, and the governor had a man with experience in these operations on hand. His name was Capitan Juan de Alacron. The English called him Larco, and by the beginning of 1684, Alacron had a fleet ready to sail, two Barcalongo and at least one Pink with well over 250 men. 
It was a fleet intended to destroy New Providence. Back in the Bahamas, though, the new governor had arrived. But they were still in the transition phase. Richard Lilburn had yet to take his office up officially. Still, he was going to be the new governor, and everyone knew it. And he had orders for all the residents of Charlestown, indeed the whole of the Bahamas. Thomas Paine and his associates were outlawed. They were to be hunted down and arrested. Then they would face justice. Any man caught doing business with the pirates was to be arrested, and his assets would be seized. Any man with knowledge of their dealings or whereabouts was to come forth, and any man harboring the pirates, well, he was likely to be executed. The English were particularly interested in capturing Bereha, but they actually got some facts wrong. They thought he was an Englishman named Breshaw, who was apparently, in their eyes, a pirate mastermind in command of all the pirates in the West Indies. And it's hard to fault the governor for this decision. Pirates were a problem, and he was there to put an end to their depravities, but he did have a new problem. He was taking over a colony that had attacked and insulted the Spanish over and over and over again. The pirates that were responsible for all of those attacks and insults, though, were also his first line of defense. They had the guns and the ships and the men. They were the deterrent to Spanish retaliation. And now they were outlawed, and they were long gone. Charlestown was free of pirates now, but that means they also now had no defenses to speak of. Still, things were quieter in Charlestown, with the pirates gone. On 18 January 1684, the people of New Providence Island were content. They were a growing colony of at least 400 men capable of bearing arms, you know, free white men between about age 14 and death. They had double that in women, children, and slaves, a bit more, in fact, and all of this growth was thanks to a wave of immigration from all around the Atlantic world, but especially from the people of Eleuthera. Now that New Providence was booming, many Eleutherans moved over, especially the white population. Charlestown had a, a superior harbor and just better everything. The scoundrels down by the water aside, Charlestown was a bustling, up-and-coming little city. They had Nice homes, lacquered and whitewashed. They had enough food for everyone. They had at least a pair of churches and a marketplace and a meeting hall for the governing council. They even had a nice little tavern. Not the kill-devil-rum sinks common among the pirates, but a tidy establishment that served decent beer and excellent food called the Wheel of Fortune. It was the kind of place where even respectable women would not be embarrassed to show their faces. Robert Lilburn was staying there at the Wheel of Fortune Inn. By this time he'd been in Charlestown a couple of weeks and he did not yet have a place to live. Robert Clark had his own home out on the edge of town, but that was his own private property, not to be transferred over with the office. In fact, Robert Clark was at his home with his family and a few farmhands, and they were finishing up their work on the evening of the 18th of January.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Meanwhile, Some miles to the west of New Providence, a woodcutter named William Bell was on the final leg of a cutting expedition. He was returning home to New Providence. That same evening of 19 January, William Bell was at anchor off the coast of Andros Island, probably to put in for the night, probably enjoying a smoke and a drink before bed. I like to imagine him with his feet up, or maybe in his hammock, with a drink and a book in his lap, watching the sun sink below the horizon. And then, a pair of ships appeared round the coast headed straight for his little alcove. The watchman on board Bell's ship sounded the alarm, and all hands raced for their positions, but they were too late. In mere moments, two barks were bearing down on them. William Bell must have wondered, are they pirates? But no... When they hailed his little logging vessel, they were Spaniards. And that was worse. The Spanish ships weren't large, but they were perfect for raiding the Bahamas. And they were absolutely filled with Spaniards, all of whom were armed to the teeth. They carried steel, muskets, pistols, and granados. These Spanish raiders captured William Bell's little sloop and brought Bell himself on board their own ship to serve as a guide for the pilot. With his life on the line, William Bell complied. Shortly after dark, the people of Charlestown on New Providence began to lay their heads down to rest. Several hours later, at 3 a.m. on the morning of 19 January 1684, Captain Juan de Alacron and his force of 250 soldiers put in at Rush's Bay. That was a bay about half a mile from the outskirts of Charlestown. Today, it's called Delaporte Bay. But at the time, the closest house to Delaporte Bay was the home of Robert Clark. Lilburn filed a report with the Lords of Trade some weeks later, and it's one of the better accounts we have of what happened here. He writes of the beginning of the attack, quote, Juan de Larco, 
what the English called Alacron, with 250 Spaniards came down the harbor and landed at Captain Clark's, half a mile to the east of Charlestown. Captain Clark, being out of doors near the waterside, some men in ambush shot him through the thigh and cut his arms with a cutlass. End quote. Now I do have a couple of questions. It's surprising that they landed so close to Governor Clark's house, but not out of the question. It was close to one of the best anchorages on New Providence, and they did have a guide who may have known where the governor, former governor's house was. What I really want to know is what was Clark doing out of doors at 3 a.m.? I think it's probable that Lilburn got that bit wrong. I think it's more likely that the Spanish came upon his house, burst through the door, and attacked. But Clark was shot and sliced up a bit, but he was not killed. We don't know what happened to Clark's family or his friends and associates there. It's possible they were killed or wounded or taken away by the Spanish. Regardless, Lilburn goes on in his account, quote, They marched with all haste to the town, firing into some houses as they went, end quote. And that's, you know, not a nice thing to do, but it's still only the beginning. As the Spanish reached Charlestown proper, they bypassed the town for now and instead headed for the harbor. There was a skeleton crew remaining on their two barks and their pink, and those three ships blockaded the harbor. Not a complete blockade, there were three pretty small ships, and the geography of the harbor at New Providence is important here. There are two ways out. We're going to be talking a lot about that in the future, but... For now, that interesting geography did allow two of the ships to escape. However, in all the hustle and bustle, the Spanish who were marching into Charlestown marched to the harbor and took the remaining four ships there. They climbed aboard from the docks. The Spanish captured their crews, they tied them up, and they took control of the ship's guns. And I wonder if the town was wide awake yet. I assume so, there had been a fair bit of gunfire in the countryside, but it seems like at this moment most of the people in town were still rushing outside to see what the trouble was about, and it was at this moment that the Spanish fired off all of the big guns from those four ships into the town. Now, we're not talking about a massive 40-gun broadside here, maybe like four or six guns max. But still, there was a sudden eruption of big guns, noise, and smoke, and even though there were only a few, even a few cannonballs ripping through your town are going to cause a commotion. All of that, and the screaming, I imagine had a powerful psychological effect. Lilburn goes on in his account, quote, Hearing the sound of their shot and seeing the flash, I ordered a great gun at my door to be fired, to give the alarm. But before it could be loaded, the Spaniards were firing into the house, and I slipped out the back door into the garden. A volley whistled past my head, and we fled into the woods behind the town, where several women and some men, but only one of them armed, were already come. Not knowing what had happened, we waited till evening. End quote. Which was the smart move for Lilburn here, but... It is a problem for us. We lose the governor's first-hand account of the attack. 
You know, he was hiding in the woods. He can't tell us the play-by-play here. There are some other sources, but they're sparse, and some of them are more like rumors or stories of dubious believability. They are, though, entertaining, after a fashion. One account tells us that the Spanish marched into town with former Governor Clark tied up to a stick carried by two men. Think Han Solo or Luke Skywalker at the Ewok village in Return of the Jedi. But I mean, imagine that. You're sound asleep, in bed, next to your spouse, and then a loud crack in the night. You and your spouse jump out of bed, grab the kids, maybe your eldest carries the baby, but you don't have a gun. That's something everybody makes a point of here. There just weren't that many guns in Charlestown, especially now that all the privateers were gone. Then, as you're rushing out the door, you see a column of Spanish marauders marching past with the old governor hogtied and screaming. I personally don't know how I deal with that. But not to worry, I am in luck. Since I'm assuming the role of a man in this scenario, I would be relieved of agency almost immediately. The Spanish shot more than a few men, and those that they didn't were clubbed in the head with a musket or run through. So I would get off easy. As usual, the women and girls had a tougher time of it. They were loaded on board these Spanish ships and locked in the holds to eventually be carted back to Cuba. And if you're an optimist, maybe they got married off or, or joined a convent. But I wouldn't bet on it. The Spanish, though, were in a rush, so here in Charlestown, they did not take the time to rape and pillage, just, just the pillaging. And the English did try to run, and some made it, like the governor and those in the woods with him. But most people in Charlestown were either wounded, killed, or kidnapped. Including, naturally, the slave population. They were all carted back to Cuba to continue their lives of enslavement. But with the inhabitants dealt with, the Spanish could take the time to loot every home, as well as the tavern, the Wheel of Fortune, and the local warehouse. Now this wasn't a great haul, but plunder really wasn't the point here, though they did take all the food as well. The point was destruction and destitution. It was enough, though, that it would not fit on their two barks, so they also took the two largest ships in the harbor and all of the cargo on the other two. They took everything. Everything that wasn't nailed down and probably some stuff that was... By a bit after noon, the Spanish were done with Charlestown. With their departure, the weekend returned to Governor Lilburn's account, and he does have a couple of interesting nuggets to add to the story. He and twenty of the strongest men that were out there in the woods, including the one man with a gun, returned to town. Then Lilburn writes, quote, I kept watch that night, and the next day we brought in the people from the woods but the town was miserably plundered. Some of the Spaniards' prisoners, who escaped, told us that they had a commission from the governor of Havana, and that it was a return for Veracruz. Adding that I had granted commissions of that kind. But a letter of mine to one of the prisoners captured by the Spaniards was shown to them, 
which forbade all English to join in an attack on St. Augustine, and proved my innocence. End quote. That the Spanish blamed the people of New Providence for the attack on Veracruz is... Well, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, it's human nature, a pretty terrible part of human nature, to blame people of a particular group when other people in their particular group do something terrible. Take, for example, the treatment of many Muslim people after 9-11. It doesn't really make any sense, but you can see how people would make those connections, right? Here's the thing. In this case, you've got Lauro de Graff, a Dutchman flying French colors, attacking Veracruz, and the Spanish retaliated against the English. And it seems like they blamed Lilburn, or perhaps that they didn't really understand that Lilburn was the new governor. They did know, though, that Governor Clark was their enemy. And the Spanish got their revenge against this patron of pirates. According to at least one questionable source, they marched Robert Clark, hogtied, remember, into the center of town. And once the killing was mostly done, they began to torture him. But it didn't last long. After a short period of torture, they cut his head off. They left his body there in the town square, but they took the head with them back to Havana, to show the governor that they had indeed killed the man who had given them so much trouble. After departing New Providence, the Spanish sailed over to Eleuthera and had their way with that island as well. We know very little about what actually happened there. Remember, there weren't any white people left on Eleuthera, so nobody thought to care too much about what was happening over there. But rest assured, it wasn't great. In the months that followed, this raid on New Providence Island, the people of Charlestown sued for the return of their families and their slaves and property. But the Spanish just dismissed it all out of hand. They weren't having any of it. According to a different contemporary account, quote, the governor of Havana, when asked if he had authorized this, the attack they mean, threatened further hostilities in spite of the evidence that Governor Lilburn had done all he could to prevent depredations on the Spaniards. Information has since been received that the governor of Havana has sent another party of men to New Providence, burned all the houses, murdered the governor, and several more in cold blood, stripped the rest of the men naked, and carried away the women, children, and negroes to Havana. End quote. A second raid did occur but it seems like that account may be getting a bit garbled with the first account, because Governor Lilburn wasn't killed, but Governor Clark was killed in the first attack. This second attack, though, well, it was the last straw, the final nail in the coffin. There weren't many people left on New Providence after the first attack, and there were even fewer after the second. And those that remained, well, most of them left. I mean, there wasn't anything there anymore. Their homes had been ravaged and burned. Their children and wives had been taken, and the few men that were left were probably very injured. Most went off to Jamaica and some to Carolina. And I do imagine that some of them turned to piracy in a quest for revenge against the Spanish. It's a good origin story for a pirate. He could already be missing an eye or maybe a hand. 
If there were any of these, though, we, or at least I, don't know their names. But that appeared to be that for the island of New Providence. It remained, as far as most of the world was concerned, abandoned for the next couple of years. Eventually, another colonization effort arrived on New Providence in 1689. The Lord's proprietor had changed. There were different men in charge, although officially it was the same body. But when that colonization effort arrived, they did find some squatters. It was a small group of the same kind of scavengers that had lived on New Providence for the last half a century or so. And thanks to the presence of these squatters already in residence, that old dichotomy between seaborne scallywags and the Christian planters, well, it continued on, and would continue on for the duration of our story in New Providence. This new group of settlers in 1689 had some changes to make, though. First of all, they resumed construction on the fortress there at Charlestown. They had begun it a few years earlier, but it was nowhere near done when the Spanish attacked. The most important thing, though, was the name. They couldn't go on calling it Charlestown. There's a superstition that when a town is so completely destroyed, as Charlestown was, it's bad luck to continue calling it the same town. Take the shift when Port Royal Jamaica was destroyed to Kingston. Additionally, the English had just gone through their glorious revolution. King Charles was out of style, so they didn't want to continue calling it Charlestown. William III, the new King of England, and the Prince of Orange was also the Lord of Nassau. In fact, Orange Nassau was a single title. But that seemed good enough for the people of New Providence. They changed their city's name to Nassau, New Providence Island. These colonists elected a couple of governors over the following few years. Neither were very important. One was fine, the other was a nightmare. But it was the third governor elected after the 1684 attack that's going to have a real impact on our story. His name was Nicholas Trot, and two years after his election in 1696, it was Nicholas Trot that welcomed Henry Every and the crew of the Fancy to Nassau. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight 